0: we read things all the time and without thinking about it we process like how we're supposed to read it. So we read words and numbers put together in lots of different ways and we after a while begin to know okay this is what these numbers and things mean. So for instance you see a couple of them so on the far left, for many of you know, if we've got ingredients and a tablespoon of this, a cup of this, directions, you'll see numbers and symbols. And you know how to process those kinds of things. You know what's being said. Or you certainly know this week looks like it's not going to be a cool week. It's going to be a warm week. And so you kind of know where that's going. Or you see different messages. Like we begin to, we know what this means if you uh, if you have a, a phone. And then certainly where I live pretty regularly, is you you know what these kind of things mean. There's all kinds of data on that screen, and you're processing the images, what's going on. So we know, we know how to do this. We know there are some kind of rules of the road, some clues as we look at these different things. And in the Bible, it's similar as well. So when we read different portions of Scripture, we intuitively know what some things are being said and what the rules are in how we read them. So you read something like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. It's kind of, you, you have categories for that. Or if you were to read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or if you were to read, the, the birth of Jesus Christ was in this way. Or if you were to read, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We know there are rules for those different things and we read them differently. But it is something altogether different when we come to the book of Revelation. We're going to take the next several weeks. uh, We we began last week looking at Revelation, and we don't always know how to read that. So uh, I came across this quote, and I thought it kind of just helpfully summarized things. So it said, In Revelation 6 alone, so we're looking at 7 today, but in Revelation 6 alone, a lamb opens six seals on a scroll. That leads to riders on different colored horses dealing out judgments. Then souls under the heavenly altar cry out to God, followed by a huge earthquake causing the sun to turn black, the moon blood red, and the whole world to come apart. And he ends it with this. Revelation is the strangest book in the whole Bible. This is not a critic of Revelation. This is actually a person that's written three books on Revelation. And yet he says this is there are things going on that, that are just they're different. In processing. I'm not reading all of Revelation today, but we're looking at some of it. And my goal has been for us in this series is to appreciate, this is God's revealed word, Revelation, right? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that we might be able to appreciate what's going on. And, and really I have a couple goals, and I mentioned these last week, I'm, gonna, I'm going to kind of reorient ourselves to it. I am praying that some of these scenes that we see in Revelation will stick with us. Because I'm positive none of us are going to master every single detail of Revelation. There's too much and there's, there's too much conjecture about what this means and what that means. But I do believe you can know what certain scenes are and your mind can, can associate things with that particular scene and you can know where that's found in the Bible. And my other goal is not just that we would remember, but that we would see Revelation isn't something that, like, oh yeah, that happens in like millennia away. You know, maybe maybe 300,000 years from now it matters, but I need something that helps me like right now, and I want to go, you've come to the right place. You've come to the book of Revelation. It can speak to you and help you right now. So last week we looked at the scene in Revelation 4 and 5, and and really this is a continuation of it. So I'll ask you to open your Bibles, turn to Revelation 7. I'm going to ask uh, Linda Middleton to come, and she's going to begin reading in verse 9. So Revelation 7 and verse 9.
1: And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
0: Thank you so much for reading. I want to really divide this scene that we just read. It, it is one scene, but I want to divide it up into two parts or at least look at two different things. One of those, I'm, I'm kind of pulling together, and that is I want us first to look at the throne and the lamb. The throne and the lamb. This is a similar picture of what we looked at last week. And just to refresh us, as John looks and sees the throne, he sees he sees the one on the throne, but the one right before the throne is the lamb. These images go together in John's mind. As a matter of fact, as, as he speaks of them, it's, it's clear they're distinct persons, but they're receiving the same kind of worship. They're receiving the same kind of praise. The one on the throne is God Almighty. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. And, and as John sees it, it's, it's almost as if they are one essence and yet distinct The same kinds of things said about the one on the throne are said about the Lamb. The one on the throne was and is and is to come. But it also says about the Lamb, about Jesus, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, really going to the first and the last, kind of stretching our horizons to eternity. Texts like this are why Christians recognize God Almighty on the throne, the Father is God. Texts like this say, well, we see full worship, and there's, there's no other scenes of worship like this where the Son is worshipped like this as well. The Father is God, Jesus is God. As time went along, the more Christians read texts like these, the more they tried to put those together. The God is one in essence, and even as Chris Rainey prayed a moment ago, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... But texts like these remind us salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. They're distinct, yet worship is given, and that praise is contagious. I love the picture. It's a picture. It starts with this multitude of people praising, but then it extends, and after a little bit we'll look deeper into the multitude, but... But just picture this. There's a a group of people that are are praising the Lord. They are lamb worshipers. They are God worshipers. And they're particularly worshiping the lamb because he is rescued. He is saved. They have palm branches in their hand. And whenever we would hear of palm branches, it, it certainly takes us to Palm Sunday where people are welcoming Jesus in victory saying, save us. Save us now. You've come to rescue Revelation 1 and verse 5, this praise is because he loves us and he has set us free from our sins by his blood. Revelation 5, 9, he purchased people for God by his blood. And so there's this scene of worship and it spreads. It isn't just the multitude praising, but then the the living beasts praise and then the 24 elders praise and then there's myriads of angels praising. In Scripture, it shouldn't surprise us. Praise is always contagious. Psalm one fifty and verse two says, Praise God and tell of his unequalled greatness psalm thirty four would say, Taste and see that the Lord is good romans eleven it's kind of like is inviting us all oh the the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? Scripture is like this filled with contagious praise. And it's not just to the one who sits on the throne. Praise is often directed toward Jesus as well. So you read in Philippians 2 that he has a name which is above every other name. At the name of Jesus, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's very similar to Colossians 1 that says, in everything, Jesus should have first place in Ephesians would say it like this in Ephesians 3, there are unsearchable riches in Christ. Acts 4, Peter would say there is no other name under heaven given to, to human beings. There is no other name whereby we can be saved. In John fourteen six, Jesus himself would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through him. And that's why Romans 9 would say, Jesus Christ is God over all, blessed forever. Hebrews 2.9, he is crowned with glory and honor. The center of attention must be Jesus. And this isn't just a picture from some distant universe or somewhere like, well, we fast forward time, I don't know, you know, 300,000 years, then this would be what's going on. Actually, this should inform today. There's a reason why Jesus is the center of what we're doing. There's a reason why, Chris read a moment ago, his words. There's a reason why we would sing, crown him with many crowns, the one who rose from the grave. We sing his praise because he's the center, is this picture in our mind. If this is going on continually in heaven, then shouldn't shouldn't that inform what we do on earth? Shouldn't we find ourselves worshiping? And and, and Larry was talking about this a moment ago. We delight, we enjoy, we trust, we have confidence in, we praise, we give strength and honor and glory and thanks to the one who is on the throne and the Lamb. You say, well, yeah, Curtis, that is exactly why I go to church on Sundays. I go to worship. I go to praise. I go to give blessing and honor and thanks to the Lord. I would say, let's keep doing that. Let's do that passionately. Let's gather here regularly. Let's not make it incidental that we come to church, but a priority that we come and gather with God's people and praise Him. Let's do that. But this scene is talking about so much more than what we might do at Sunday at 11 o'clock. If this scene is happening in heaven, which Scripture gives us this kind of picture of it, well, this would— This would influence what we do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. It would influence every day of the week. In our quiet time, in our commute, in caring for children, in exercising, we would find ourselves singing or praising or giving thanks or giving strength and honor and blessing to the Lord. In our appointments, when we grieve, we would say, Blessed is your name, O Lord. When we rejoice, we would say, every good thing comes from you. When we hurt, we would say, you deserve all the honor and glory. When we feel like we are on top of the world, we would say, yours is the kingdom and the glory and the honor. We we would feel consumed. Our hearts would be filled with gratitude and praise and awe. I just want to make sure we see the one on the throne, because that throne speaks, doesn't it? It speaks of the one who rules and reigns. He has a throne for a reason. He's in charge. And we say all praise goes to him. We see the one on the throne and the lamb. But I also want you to see another scene in Revelation 7. I really want to draw our attention to this and spend some time looking at not just the one on the throne, but the multitude. Did you see that in verse 9? There's a multitude of people. So it's an interesting picture in Revelation 7, 9. This isn't just angels. They come later. It's not just heavenly beings. They come later. But in Revelation 7, 9, it is a group of people, human beings, image bearers of God. And the picture John says is this is innumerable. And I want us to look at that multitude because I I believe as much as we may not understand about Revelation, I think we can identify with so much of what's going on in that multitude. You see, in that multitude, it's a multitude that originates from all nations. That's what verse 9 said. It's a, a multitude that comes from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages. When you read all nations in Scripture, you are kind of tapped into a major stream of thought in, in the Bible. It's almost like the Mississippi River that goes right through the Midwest. It's just a, it occupies a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of thought. When you read all nations, you can even go back to Genesis seventeen four, where God promises, Father Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of all nations. Many nations will come from you. And when God begins to reveal what his Messiah is going to look like in Isaiah 49, he said, it is too small a thing, it is too light a thing to only rescue the people of Israel. I'm sending my Messiah for all nations. That's why in Isaiah 56, God says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's why when Jesus comes, he's constantly dealing not just with Jewish people, but with all nations. That's why Jesus would say in the book of John, I have, I have sheep that are of another fold, not just the people of Israel, but from all nations. That's why Jesus, when he is getting ready to ascend to heaven at his rightful place of authority and power, he commissions his disciples and he says, you go and make disciples of all nations. That's why in Acts chapter 2, when Pentecost happens, it gives us a taste of what it looks like when all these nations are saying, wait There is a crucified, risen Messiah. He's come. God has come to this earth and saved us and rescued us. And that doesn't just happen from one nationality, from one ethnicity. It's from all nations. That's why Paul would go in Romans 15 and he says, I am making it my ambition to preach the gospel where where Christ is not named because there are other nations that need to hear, that need to know that Jesus Christ died, but he's alive and he is reigning This multitude originates from all nations. And a multitude is confessing together the worthiness of Jesus Christ. That's why Colossians 3 says, In Christ, there is not Greek or Jew. Galatians 3, there is no Jew or Greek. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The multitude comes together. And that is a current reality. God has kept his promise Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And now it's a reality. When that picture is in our mind, I think it can do so many things for us. And one of the things that I hope it does for you, I hope you thoroughly enjoy the fact that God is doing something at our church to appreciate that heavenly gathering even right now while we breathe and live on this earth. Because every week, whether it's the eight thirty service or the eleven o'clock service, we look around. And we greet those from many nations. It's not all nations in this room. I understand that. But it is not unlikely for me in a given week to greet someone, to hug someone from China or Ghana or the Philippines or Kenya or Korea or Mexico or England or India or Saudi Arabia or Liberia or Nigeria or Trinidad. This, is, this goes on week after week after week and we have a, a snapshot of it. Isn't God so kind to let us see we're gathered around when we come to the Lord's Supper. We don't take it in our, our own ethnicity, our own nationality. We come together because what God has done has brought us together. When I look out and I see someone that is a, a native Delawarean, and I'm told there are a few in our congregation, not many, I'm not one, but I, I'm told there are a few. And when I see that person that they've lived here all their lives, but they are led or served by an Asian believer, who is a blessing to an African believer, who works alongside a European believer, I say, this is is a taste of where it is all going. This is a taste. We get a taste of it here on earth. I hope you appreciate it. I hope you make every effort to welcome people of every ethnicity and nationality. When you bring this many cultures together, it isn't always easy. It isn't easy. It, It can be complex. There can be things that we do wrong. Misunderstandings can happen. But we give our effort toward being the one body of Christ that takes one bread, that meets as a gathering of God's people. And we say we are united by Christ. The world longs for this. I think now it's every two years you get the parade of nations with the Olympics, whether it's winter or summer. But even as the nations parade in, I've noticed how much commentary has to be given to explain... Well, this is significant because this country is not getting along with this country. And this flag represents this particular people that have been uh, marginalized and been mistreated. And this particular dictator couldn't send these. I mean, it goes on and on and on. The world's best attempt at bringing all nations together for a few weeks for a singular activity, even that breaks down. But then there's something like, I feel like it's it's holy ground, isn't it? When people from every nation say, crown him with many crowns. Only a holy God. This, this is what God can do. This is what God has done. And it means more than just appreciating our gathering. I think it means we have to go and make disciples, just as Jesus said, of all nations. We go to places around the world. This is why we go on short-term trips, summer-long trips. This is why we might go for a couple years this is why you might take a decade of your life. This is why you might give your life to God's call on you. It's a sign of life at our church that this is happening. It's a sign of life that people are saying, there are going to be people from every nation, every people group around the throne Well, we ought to go. I, often we can hear like, uh, well, isn't there a lot of good work to be done here? Shouldn't we be, like, shouldn't we think about this area? And sh- isn't there a lot of a good work, gospel work, Christ-honoring work to be done here? Well, absolutely. I just don't know that we have to say this but not that. I don't think we have to separate this. We say, of course there's good work to be done. And when there are millions, when there are billions of people who've never heard of Jesus, when there are people groups that have never heard the name of Christ, when there are people groups that don't have the Bible in their own language, should we not be fueled to go you say, well, Curtis, I'm not sure I'm called to go. Well, 100% of us are called to be involved in this by sending and praying and giving and supporting. And I love the fact that so much of the time when we pray for our offering, this is on our mind. We are praying and sending and giving and supporting so that there would be uh, people from every nation. And one more thought on this it strikes me and when I read of this like multinational multitude of people, I can't help but think of all the nations that are coming to us. I think of, of places where it would be very hard to go with an American passport. And I think God is sending the nations to us to love and show, not to manipulate, but to love and show, this is what Christ is like, this is what the body of Christ is like, this is how deeply we care. This is how we open our homes. This is how we share a meal. This is how we love. And it's amazing. It's amazing. I will never get tired of when God sends someone to Newark, Delaware, of all places. God sends them to us. And somehow they get connected with you, a portion of our body. And they hear the message of Jesus, and they bow the knee to Jesus, and they get baptized, and they go back to their their country of origin. We think this is all nations. This is so much bigger than just our, our gathering. They would be part of this multitude. This multitude, so, so you see, like this isn't just some off the wall picture in the, in the long term future. This, is, this helps us see what God's doing right now. This multitude, we can also identify something else with it. This is a multitude that suffered through great tribulation. That's what verse 14 says. They have come out of great tribulation and they've remained faithful. I think of pictures and documentaries I've seen and books I've read about POWs coming out of camp who have been through a great ordeal or I think of uh, it always gets me the tearjerker videos of someone that served their country a man or a woman and they come back and they see their kids and like I always loved seeing those reunions and when I see like they've come out of great tribulation kind of get a picture of this they've stayed faithful some might have even experienced martyrdom. It's a, it's a picture here of coming out of great tribulation. And, the, and, and they knew they would face this because Jesus had said, don't be surprised. In this world, you're going to have suffering. You are going to have distress. But you can take heart. I've overcome the world. Second Timothy says, everybody who lives godly is going to suffer persecution. So we know this. And once we have this picture in our mind, there is a scene that of these that come out of that tribulation and God has watched over them. We can can be helped even in our season of suffering. We don't have to be frightened. We don't have to be filled with despair. Because of the fall, we know we live in a world that is broken, it's messed up. And we know we live in a world where sometimes things are hostile to living out our faith. Sometimes things are hostile just to living. But 1 Peter says, you don't have to be surprised at a fiery trial. God's in charge. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid of evil. Because the Lord's your shepherd. You can endure difficulty and hardship as a good soldier. You can can face even situations that, like James 5, that envisions where you call on the elders to pray for you because you need physical healing. That that prepares us that we're going to live in a very difficult world. And Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armor of God. Why do you have the armor of God on? Because you're going into hostile territory. So put it on. But recognize in the middle of that, God is faithful to you. God walks with you. God doesn't abandon you. There are these that are coming out of great tribulation. And God takes the things that were meant for evil. And he works them out for our good. He's filled with compassion. The flame doesn't consume us spiritually. The flood doesn't overwhelm us spiritually. He's our refuge and our strength. A multitude has suffered, and they've come out of this great tribulation. And this multitude also, they've come out of great tribulations, but there's something about what they're wearing. It's a multitude, Scripture says, that has been clothed with white robes. So again, the symbolism matters here when you see a white robe in their culture and their time, the original readers of John's letter here. If you had a white robe, it might symbolize a couple different things. I think both may be present here. One is purity, cleanness. You can imagine the priests wearing white robes. Another would be victory. It seemed like the victors always, like they're waving the palm branches, they're wearing white robes. You see this picture and certainly we can identify with what it means to be clothed in purity and righteousness. This multitude is clean. I think in light of other scriptures, this multitude has experienced what it means to be declared not guilty before God. You see, we all want to be right. We all want to be pure. And and sometimes we just, we're right in our own eyes. We're righteous in our own eyes. We determine the way I think I'm going to be on the righteous side of everything. But we can't generate or manufacture our own righteousness. We have to be clothed in it. What's interesting about this robe of white is it was dipped in blood. Not normally a cleaning agent, right? It doesn't get anything cleaner except here. What is that robe dipped in blood? It's telling us this is the blood of the Lamb. This is the one who shed blood for us. It takes us even back to the cross where the righteousness of God is for us because of what Christ did on the cross for us. The cost was born by the Lamb, a group that's clean before God. This is the art of celebration. We're free from condemnation. It's what we sung a moment ago. That's the picture here. You can't earn this righteousness, but it was given by Jesus. And again, it's a picture of righteousness. It's also a picture of victory. They've overcome. They have fought the good fight. They've kept the faith. They've finished their course. They've resisted the evil one. This is like not only the grace of justification being declared not guilty, but the grace of sanctification in that they've overcome. And this is the picture in heaven. So what we ought to do is rest in the righteousness we have white robes to wear, and we pursue purity because of what the Lamb has done for us, the one who has made us righteousness, given us his righteousness. So we pursue faith instead of defaulting to cynicism. We pursue purity instead of letting our lives be consumed with lust. We trust instead of being stubbornly self-reliant. We have humility instead of all the subtle or not so subtle ways of going me first. I'm the most important person here. We have joy instead of anger. We have contentment instead of greed. We pursue patience instead of the deep seated, low grade frustration that makes us ticked off with everybody all the time. Because the Lamb has clothed us in his righteousness. What will it be like to be a part of that multitude? Saved to sin no more. The multitude has much to teach us. I love the, the last description there in Revelation 7 and verse 15. It says, this multitude is before the throne of God. And I want you to mark this. They serve him day and night in his temple. And the one who sits on the throne shelters them with his presence. They don't hunger. They don't thirst. The sun doesn't strike them no scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne is their shepherd. And he guides them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When I see this multitude and kind of what's being pictured here, I see a multitude that enters into an eternity of life-giving service to the Lord. I think that ought to impact how we live today. We're going to focus more on the new heaven and new earth. My goodness, it says they serve him day and night. The word service has like a worship connotation to it. So heaven isn't just like one big lazy river. We're just going to stream on for eternity. Like there's service for the Lord. But there's service that is like slavery, that demeans you, that makes you less, and then there are things you give your life to in service that actually make you more and increase who you are. And that's the kind of service talked about. Do we live... What do we do today? We live our lives open-handed to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Today, in light of the service that you will give to the Lord for eternity today, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans 12 says... I'm urging you, based on the mercies of God, off your bodies as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. This is reasonable service, or other translations say spiritual worship. This scene should inform so much of how we live. This multitude, we begin to project it in our own lives. I'm going to ask at this time for our deacons to prepare to service the Lord's Supper. Even as they're making those preparations, I I think lots of revelation might and could confuse us, but I hope this passage doesn't. I hope what we've seen is a multitude, a multitude gathered around Jesus Christ. This morning, we can see some things about ourselves. We are a gathering of the Lamb. He's the center of our attention. We're gathered to do simple but profound things simple things, but profound, like singing his praises, listening to his word, praying in his name, and now we eat and drink in remembrance of him. So this is what I want to say. If you have professed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you publicly professed your faith in him, we want to welcome you to the Lord's table today by observing the Lord's Supper, this is what we're saying. We are identifying with that multitude and saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb forever. In just a moment, the, the deacons will distribute the bread and the juice and then we'll take it together as a congregation.
1: Would you join me as we pray? Now, to Him who loves us, and released us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.